You're listening to The Fully Occupied Show, presented by Occupier. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to give us a follow on your favorite listening platform. Uh, We have a great episode for you here today. Our uh, guest is Simon Davis. He's the founder and CEO of Purposeful Intent. Simon is a repeat guest of ours. If you want to rewind the clock back two years, uh, Simon joined us uh, to talk about the work that he was doing pre and mid pandemic uh, with with workplace strategy. Uh, But Simon's uh, cut off on his own recently, and he started a movement called Purposeful Intent, which is a way of gathering uh, corporate real estate, workplace people, real estate decision makers, and general occupants of buildings to have a conversation about the future of work. It's not simply just about uh, how to go into an office and how to build an office, but uh, what does the future of work and life balance look like uh, among the people uh, that are following purposeful intent. So, uh, please, uh, listen in, uh, we're going to talk, uh, deeply about, um, you know, the return to work debate, uh, and a little bit, um, uh, more about how purposeful intent, uh, is growing and some of the cool events that are coming, coming up over the next, uh, year or so. Uh, thank you. Enjoy. Simon, welcome to the Fully Occupied Show. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely, Matt. Lovely to see you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, always, uh, always a pleasure catching up with you, whether it's in person at a, an event or a, a pub or wherever it might be, um, or just virtual. To be honest, so it's great to see you. I'm trying to remember the last time we hung out in person. Was it New York? Was it uh, Boston? Boston. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's right. That event was incredible. We cooked some. Uh, we cooked some incredible stuff that night with Bo and the team. Um, and we can get into what that was all about, but uh, maybe for our audience, you could uh, give us the background on who is Simon Davis. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, th- thanks, Matt. Um, yeah, I've spent about 20 or over 20 years now working in corporate real estate technology. And, and, and what I mean by that is very much all of my career has been spent servicing the needs of occupiers with relation to tech to help them better manage their portfolios. Uh, you know, back in the day, my career started off in the IWMS world. So for those of you that might not know that term, integrated workplace management systems, um, it was really one of the original SaaS tools. So you can manage everything from leases to projects, to facilities, uh, to space, um, later adopted ESG as well. Um, so sort of got a very good grounding early on in terms of the entire real estate life cycle from a corporate's perspective. Um, and I've stayed in that lane um, pretty much up until the last year. Um, so, you know, spent time on the consulting side, uh, building products, uh, delivering product, uh, managing uh, client relationships, et cetera. Um, and, and kind of, I think through all of that, built a really great network of, of incredible people. Um, you know, some I've known for a short period of time and some I've known for that 20 year period of time. And uh, coming out of COVID, had this sort of realization that the network was reaching out to me to ask me questions about, you know, what were other companies doing? So I'd have, you know, one Fortune 500 call me and ask me what other companies were doing in that space. Um, and then as we actually sort of came back physically out of COVID, we went back into our, uh, as you and I have done a multitude of times, you know, our typical cadence of five or six events back to back in the fall. 
Um, I was really blown away by the fact that none of the events were really catering to that discussion, right? They weren't having the what do we do next discussion, what have we learned? It was still, you know, sort of reverted back to traditional formats of having people come um, and really speak about what they wanted to speak about as opposed to facilitating deeper conversations. Um, I sort of took it upon myself then to, to, you know, look at developing a forum where we could bring people in together with the prime goal of actually just speaking to each other about challenges, futures. Um, and certainly at that time, um, you know, it was really looking at, I think, a lot of those questions around return to office and, and what was going to happen. Um, I would say what's happened in the last year and a half is that we've really grown from being something that was very tactical to uh, meet a need in the market for these events to something that has actually become a real community. Um, you know, we really have an incredible following and, and people willing to dedicate time, effort and their, their knowledge uh, in order to seeing how do we make things better. Um, the other thing that I've learned in that period of time is really, you know, my lens has changed considerably because of COVID. Um, as you know, I have a six-year-old, uh, although she tells people she's six and a half now because that's very important to be precise, um, that I kind of, through COVID, began to see the world through, right? Firstly, as a dad, like how much time I was spending away from her and the things I missed, and that sort of was a spur for me to change my goals and my aspirations. Um, and then secondly, just looking at it from a professional aspect of, you know, what is this little girl going to do in terms of where is she going to work? How is she going to work? And then I've sort of started pairing that back, firstly, and looking at how does education play into that, right? Traditional models of yes, no answers, testing memory, to me, really don't make any great bearing for the future work. Um, and then on a forward-looking basis, how do you really expand that so she has the kind of flexibility that I have? Right. So how do you make it really a, a future of living um, and look at how do you integrate your work and your life and your family um, so that you can really enjoy the best of all worlds? So, it's you know, I'd say what started off as really a very tactical thing has become really mission driven um, with a great community and, and, and great content and speakers and, um, you know, knowledge, um, knowledgeable individuals behind it. Yeah. So when you started it, obviously, it was born out of this experience of covid where you know, return to office wasn't really a thing before that, before that, the pandemic. And then all of a sudden it was like, okay, like how and how and when are we going to get people back to the office? And no one really probably predicted that, like, maybe the answer is never, um, at least a hundred percent. Um, but what were some of the questions that your network was coming to you for answers on? Were, were they like, Hey, how do I, how do I communicate to the workforce that we don't know what we're doing? How do I, um, look at my real estate portfolio and, you know, make quick decisions that, so I could downsize space. Like what, what is it kind of all the above or like what were their main themes as to, you know, what people wanted to talk about coming out of call it like 2021 ish when the world started yeah. to like 22 call it. I think one of the common things I saw was, was, was really a fair factor of what happens if I make the wrong decision, right? What if I advise my CEO that we should downsize all of our space uh, restrictions lift, and then all of a sudden, people are banging on the doors to try and get in. Right, so I think I think people were put in a position they didn't want to make the wrong call. Um, I think the second thing that that I really felt was, you know, often being asked the question of why were other companies bringing their employees back, right? And I think that's still a question, frankly, that is not being answered enough. Is is the why? Um, I believe there is incredible value in person to person that you cannot replicate on a remote basis, and. And, and I'll say that to anybody because it's those things that you can't measure, you can't understand, you know, those sort of casual collisions, those interactions that stem out of being there in person, 
right, that we wouldn't have doing something like this. We still get a rich connection. We still have the ability to, you know, work in a collaborative environment. But I think the unknowns is, is where the actual real value and the power is um, of, of being in person. So, you know, the why was, was definitely a big piece. Um, and then I think the other thing that, that I saw myself and, and, and the reason that I wanted to expand this out even further was, you know, two years ago, almost, uh, uh, I went to a HR conference in London on the future of work. And what blew my mind was out of something like, um, you know, 160 speakers, there was only one that had a real estate title. Um, so my other realization was, well, how well can people determine what should be happening with real estate when they have a vested interest in making sure we keep real estate? You know, if you're the head, and I've had this recently with, with, with a, with a, with a uh, contact of mine, but you know, if you're the head of real estate and your company decides to go fully remote, then you suddenly worked yourself out of a job. Um, so, you know, I, I think those uh, were the material, the material things, you know, one was, one is very much the, um, you know, why, why are we bringing people back? You know, what, what's the rationale for what we're doing Two is, that fear factor about not wanting to be the person that made the mistake. And I think that's caused still a ton of inertia, right? Where people aren't doing things yet because they're kind of waiting to see. And the wait and see model is, has been around, I think, since you know we started coming back out, right? Not, not that many people have, are showing their hands. Um, the ones that do put their head above the parapet are often getting it chopped off. Um, and I think often for the right reason, right? Because there's this inequity created by the fact that you have the CEO of a company saying you are coming back in four days a week and the HR people look at the press release saying, well, wait a minute, we've just spent all this time working out. How do we have a, you know, a hybrid strategy and the real estate people have spent all this time determining, well, wait a minute, we're going to get rid of a ton of our space. I mean, you know, I know inside of baseball, but even just look at the Salesforce scenario, you know, where uh, the CEO announces, you know, most people or the salespeople back in the office four days a week. And two weeks later, they announce that they've, got rid of the entire space in one of their buildings, right? So if you're the head of real estate or a real estate professional that doesn't necessarily have insights into all these things that are happening, or conversely, you're the HR person who's working on all these policies, and then suddenly something comes down from the top, it's very difficult to, you know, create something that is meaningful for the employee, right? The employees are just as fearful to your point, Matt, I think of, of not really knowing what the right messaging is and what they should be doing and they should be expecting. Um, and I think without the why, it's going to be a struggle um, because, you know, you say, okay, you've got to come back in as somebody did, I think this week, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, if you live within 30 miles of the location, what's the purpose for that? The purpose that this individual gave the CEO of a large company said, you know, nothing beats working together on a whiteboard. Uh, and I would argue that a lot of things beat that. And I would also argue that most of us don't work in that way anymore, right? It's a very different way of, of working. So um, still big unknowns out there, uh, frankly. And, and, and that's the other reason why it's useful to get people together to talk about what are they seeing that's working? You know, as, as you may have seen in Boston, you know, Fidelity uh, Investments, their approach is very, very different, right? They basically say that they want their people back in the office one week a month. The rest of the time, it's your determination. They're actually purposefully looking at who they bring in in that week so that you do get some good, you know, collaboration and collision. And I'm you know, certain that people are also probably planning specific meetings around that time where they need people to be together. The rest of the time, you're giving, you know, grown-ups agency to decide what's best for them, their families, their home life. Um, and if they want to be in the office every day, they can. And if they want to be remote, they can. And if they want a hybrid, they can. Um, yeah. Your crunch comes soon, I think, because you're going to have to look at the, the cost of that. But, you know, I think flexibility, if, 
my head is really turned to one core fact, which is I believe the thing that we all doing right innately um, in this industry is we have to try and enable our clients to attract and retain the best talent. That's the important thing, right? It's not about the real estate. It's not about HR policies. It's not about technology. It's not about hospitality or finance. It's about attraction and retention, right? How do you keep the best and the brightest within your organization? And I think we're going to see some of these companies with these sort of outlandish mandates. Who are you going to lose? You're going to lose the best people, the highest paid employees that have the most flexibility and want to keep it, right? You're not going to lose the people that you may be trying to lose by making these sort of outlandish um, statements of when people should come back into the office. So. Yeah, it's interesting because I think like when you look at it from the C-suite's perspective, like it all comes down to like what you just said, um, attracting and retaining the best talent, but it's also comes down to money at the end of the day too. So when I look, at, I've thought about this a lot. I read about it all the time. We've probably debated it with you and others in the in the industry so many times. But if I'm like the CEO of a big company, there's really two things that are like scaring me. It's just like with with this new dynamic of most of my employees being remote or at least hybrid is one. I'm carrying all this real estate cost, and I don't know if I need it or not. Right. Two is are my people actually still producing at the highest output that they can in this new model? Um, you know, the whole idea like of working from home should allow you more flexibility so that you could get your work done on your schedule or, you know, actually you might take your commute out of the daily picture so that you actually have time to get more stuff done. I don't, I don't well, you argue that either way, but I'm wondering if there's like this, um, kind of calculus that these large CEOs, uh, companies, uh, CEOs of large companies go through is just like, how do we get the most out of our people and is, Ha allowing them to work from home or work while they're traveling or work hybrid are like, are, are they actually able, are we able to keep them accountable to, to do their job at the highest uh, caliber they can, if we're not watching them all day, basically, that's one question I think people are asking themselves, but no one admits that they want to, to say that they're thinking that. Uh, and the other is like just bottom line stuff, right? Like, okay, I have, you know, X million dollar line item for real estate every year. And here I have all of these leases or maybe I own my properties and this is costing us money and we're not using this asset. So how do we, how do we make decisions on real estate? But the problem with that is always that, well, real estate only exists because it's there for people. And so now we actually have to bring the person into the discussion. So like, how do we repurpose that real estate? So even as I'm talking to you about this, it just starts to become this problem where it's just this ball of yarn is just getting knottier and knottier. And there's no silver bullet to anything. I was reading an article this morning. You talked about Salesforce, Lyft, got a new CEO. He laid off 26% of the company and then told everyone they need to come in three to four days a week. And to your question earlier is like, for what purpose? Why? Now, right. if he, if he had a very clear answer to that question, it's because of this, like, and it's built into the company's mission and values and ethos that we work together on a daily basis. Cause this is how we work and this is how we do things. And if you don't want to work here, that's fine. We will find the best and brightest that do want to work in that environment. I get it. But if it's just like, okay, cost cutting, we need to come in we need to trim 25% of the head, head count down. 
And by the way, the people that are left, we want to squeeze every, <laughs> every ounce of juice out of them as possible. So we're going to make them come to the office. So, but I just still think that we're so far away from having this problem solved in time wise, right? We're still on the heels of this pandemic and everybody's trying to, you know, vilify or applaud the companies that have figured it out. No one's figured this out yet. No, I mean, it's, I think it's very different by, by everything, right? From, from the individual to the team, to the department, to the region, to the culture of the country, to the company, uh, to what the company is trying to achieve. You know, there's, in, there's nothing at all wrong with a company that is, um, you know, uh, that is uh, office first, right? Just, they're just going to limit, in my mind, the people that want to apply to work for those types of companies. What also geographically limits you too, right? I mean, you're only able Absolutely. to recruit around where that office is or those offices are. Yeah. And I think you'll see more and more of that from a global perspective in terms of, you know, let's just hire the best people um, that we can get in regardless of where they are. Right. So how do you compete on that basis? You know, if you're in New York City and you're insisting everybody comes in, you're getting hamstrung by a number of things. One is the talent pool. Two is the cost to employ those individuals, right? If I can employ the same person in Phoenix, Arizona on half the salary and let them work remotely and they're doing the job, then, then you know, why wouldn't I do that? Um, I think the productivity thing is really interesting as well and that sort of management by oversight um, because I don't think people are, I don't think people necessarily perform any better in that, in that realm. The one area that I've seen and I've spoken with a good friend who runs a few of these uh, for that is, is call centers. And, you know, interestingly, something that was typically all in, you know, in person prior to the pandemic, a lot of companies moved their call centers fully remote. They took advantage of, um, you know, having talent across the globe that could help support them in that effort. And an interesting anecdote from a, a good friend of mine whose companies run a, a number of these call centers is the fact that, you know, I said to him, I said, well, call center has to be the best place for this because you actually do have measurable outputs, right? Most of us as knowledge workers, you can't prove what you did in a particular day and how it benefited and how it gained. Call center, you can, right? How many calls am I doing? What are my conversion rates? What are my satisfaction rates, et cetera? And he said something really, really intriguing, which is, yeah, people are hitting those targets, but nobody's going above and beyond. And, and his belief is very much that the culture of a call center, you know, listening, if I'm, you know, if I'm there in sort of in the pit and I'm listening and I hear Matt say something that's really intriguing and I see that Jennifer is doing more calls than me, then there's that sort of natural drive to be better, right? And you don't get that without having right. sort of tangential, um, uh, you know, activity going on. And and I think that's a really really intriguing one. Um, with the Lyft example, I mean, it, I, it's to me it's interesting, right? Twitter did the same thing, right? Elon Musk comes in, fires so many people, not then realizing how many people were going to quit on the back of his policies. So they probably ended up firing people that they thought, okay, we can get rid of some of these. And then their better talent that they maybe wanted to keep decided to leave anyway because of those policies. And I think they have to be very careful about, about that aspect of it, right? And, and maybe in some instances, it's actually because, you know, maybe financially they should be getting rid of 30 or 40% of the company, but they decide to do it this way and let people have that option to, to quit. Um, you know, the, the workplace... I think drive, I think we all have, we all have an innate view on that, right? I've worked remotely for as long as I can remember, but I love getting together in person. I just don't think there's a need to do it every single day without any rationale behind it. And then there's all the other aspects you have to tie around that, right? It's like, I mean, I was in Australia and uh, I was asking them questions about, you know, just sort of how things were going because 
company I was speaking to, one of the things they had done is they'd started recruiting people that offered them remote work, right? So individuals that were young out of college, they didn't want to pay Sydney rents and live in Sydney. They wanted to go and live in the Gold Coast and go surfing in the morning, then come to work and then you know do their things. Um, and the interesting conversation I had was actually about a, 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 a new recruit who had turned up in office that day and the manager decided that they would be remote. So this new person on their first day in the office sits in a conference room the whole day with their manager, you know, being on a, on a Zoom on the other side. And it's like... <laughs> that you need to sort of change control, manage and policy all of these things in order for them to be valuable. The blanket saying you're coming back in is just, it's not going to work. You know, we had a good conversation about soccer before um, we got on on your trip to, to Wrexham. I have always um, alluded the, the or, or, or I've always related return to office to, you know, around the same time when, when uh, the uh, powers that be decided on a European Super League for soccer. Right. All of the decision makers are like, yeah, this is the best thing. It's going to maximize our revenues. It's going to make this an even more global sport. We're going to do it. They announce it. And then everybody voted with their feet. All the teams and all the fans said, no, we're not. And, and I see the same thing happening. Right. The reason that people that have mandates are not publicizing data is because, at least again, anecdotally from the people I'm talking to, nobody is hitting anywhere near their expectations for bringing people back. And then the next question goes, what do you do, right? If you say you have to be in the office three days a week and you're not, what are you going to do, stop firing people? I don't know. And that's, you know, that's, I think it's creating a lot of confusion for employees. Especially if those people are performing, right? It's really hard exactly. to say that. Like, exactly. And that's, you know, and that's, and that's the big, the big, I think everything tied in the economy, you know, post-pandemic work, future of work, um, people's sort of fears and concerns, they're, they're all playing into some very interesting uh, decisions being made. And as you say, we don't really know where this is going to come out. The things that we do know is what is a $3 trillion of commercial debt coming due in the next 18 months or so. Things yeah. are going to hit. You go to big cities that are not, I mean, no matter what people say, San Francisco is not what it used to be. There are just, people are just not on the streets. There might be pockets of it, but it's just not the same place. You know, you go to New York and I was in LA last week and you see more of a vibrancy but even still, you're going into office buildings that are largely empty. Um, and guess what? Pre-pandemic, we were lucky to have 60% of people in on any given day anyway, right? So we also have, I think, this view that, that there are some very unrealistic expectations because the C-suite that frankly didn't care about those numbers prior to the pandemic, and I was saying we want 80% back, 90% back. And my first comment to anybody in that front is, oh, wait a minute, pre-pandemic, when everybody was expecting to go into work, because this is what we did, you'd be lucky to have 60% of people in on a day anyway. So why are you now, you know, having these unrealistic expectations? And it's, it's a knowledge thing, uh, I think, I really do. When you say that companies weren't publicizing any of the information, where, what information is getting publicized? Like, how is there? Well, I mean, any... In terms of, you know, let's say, I mean, one company I know of, they, their, 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 their external policy is you have to be in the office three days a week. Their internal expectation they've communicated to employees is we expect you in four or five days a week. Um, and when they run the numbers on return, their return rates are at about 20%, right? So nobody is coming into the level they want them to come into. Um, and so, you know, all of these sort of big outlandish mandates, um, nobody's publicizing the data after the effect to say, hey, look what we did because it doesn't reflect well on them, right? And it's just not, um, I don't think anybody's out there saying, yep, you know, we, we put our mandate in place and everybody's coming back as we expected them to and wanted them to. And again, I think it's probably also partially because these people 
at the lower level that are actually having to enforce these things, they also are asking the questions of why are we doing this? You know, you look at, I think, some of the, um, the, the reports I've seen around, you know, enablement of things like single parent families, et cetera, in the workplace, because they are, can be more flexible. They can do a lot more when the fact that they don't have to be in the office every day. Um, and I think there's a lot of those those aspects around um, enablement, um, particularly of, you know, non-traditional, um, I wouldn't say non, but enablement of, of, of people that never had this freedom to conduct all the other important things in their life. And I'm not talking about somebody that wants to play golf more, but I'm talking about somebody who's a caregiver or, you know, is a single parent um, or, you know, is, is just trying to do things to improve both their personal as well as their professional, you know, living. Yeah, especially in situations where the economics have shifted and yep. you could benefit from not having to pay out the nose for a nanny or daycare or childcare because, you know what, I could actually pick my kid up from school, get him home, get back on my yep. calls. Like there's an, there's an economic incentive as well. Um, I think too. And I think that's where the focus would be better would be in, in, well, look, how do we manage this new distributed workforce? You know, you talk about things like uh, efficiency, productivity, et cetera. The question in my mind should be, well, how do we, how do we make sure that we manage this work environment as opposed to let's bring everyone back? Because frankly, you know, the arguments of sort of the slackers, you know, they'll find a way to slack off whether they're in the office or at home. Maybe it's easier when they're not around, but you know, it's, I think it's just such a trite argument because I don't think most people are like that. And I think that just comes down to management of, you know, of your talent, right. And understanding how people are being efficient or not. Right. Cause unless you're literally looking over their shoulder every second, you're not going to pick out the ones necessarily that are not performing. Um, yeah. So, I think like these future generations are just going to have a completely different view on like what work is. You mentioned, you, you know, your six year old daughter, Cora and what her like take, you know, what, how she's going to, choose a career path and make um, her decisions on how she works, if she works, whatever. Yeah, we have no idea. But it's interesting. I was talking with my wife about this earlier too. Like our kids were, my kids are probably a year older than you, yours. And I don't think they know anything different than mom working from home at, on her computer. And it's like, they just think that's like, that's, that's how people work. And like yep. they ask me like, daddy, why do you go to the office every day? <laughs> and like, I just, I, I have a different routine. I like going into an office. And so it's like the kids are like processing this and trying to figure out like, Oh, like mom works on a computer. Dad goes to that building. And it's like, what? <laughs> like as they get older and they go through school and they have career choices, it'll just be interesting to see what their, their idea of work is as yeah, they I enter mean, the workforce. Yeah. And again, anecdotal, but we see some interesting conversations that we've had with, you know, people in that sort of 17 to 19 year old age bracket, because um, some of them are very much of the view of, you know, I was at college, COVID hit, I didn't see my friends, I didn't interact, I didn't do anything. Um, so when I go into the workforce, I really want to be around people. Yep. Um, and then and then you see the entirely opposite of people saying, you know, what, I really like that. Somebody uh, said to me the other day, something I found really, really intriguing. Um, you know, if you went to a group of college kids, and you said, okay, you know, here's your assignment. Um, this is the terms of the assignment. This is the team. You know, you need to have this assignment done uh, by a week from Thursday, right? What do you do then, right? The, the kids go off. They determine who does what within this within the assignment. Who's responsible for what? They decide where, when, and how they're going to meet, and all these other things. 
And if you then reframe the assignment and said, okay, this assignment is due a week from Thursday, I want you to work in the library on Monday and Tuesday. I want you to work, you know, remotely via Zoom on Wednesday, Thursday, I want you to, you know, meet in this third location. Everyone would be like, what are you talking about? Why are you telling me, why are you putting these bizarre- Yeah, you said it was due next Thursday. That's all I I needed to know. (laughs) Yeah, then they work it out. And I I thought it was such a great analogy with, you know, the sort of the mandates and the demands back to the office, right? As we saw in Boston, the thing that will bring people back is magnetizing the office, not not mandates. So, you know, being able to give people reasons to come in. And when they come in, giving them a great experience, right? Giving them the things they need, giving them access points. Um, and I think as we learned there, it's not all about, you know, spending a ton of money. It's about being considerate. You know, Fidelity has a text program where it's if I've forgotten something or you know, I've spilled coffee down my shirt. I can text a message and somebody's going to bring a stain stick and I'm going to, you know, get rid of that mess. Right. And I think it doesn't have to necessarily be costly uh, things that people are bringing in to, to make the office more attractive. Um, I think it just has to be thought out. Um, I've seen other examples of a building that uh, concertina is based upon demand. Right. So they know there's going to be less people in on a Friday, for example. So on a Friday, they close down three of the floors. Um, you know, ideally saving from an ESG perspective, but also making sure that the people that do come in are coming into an area that feels vibrant and feels alive. Because to me, you know, if you're going into the office to stick in your headphones and put your head down, then why are you in the office, right? There needs to be that sort of human connection as being the value driver behind that. Um, And then I think when you look at the space side of it, there has to be all of those things that you need, right? If if you're um, like me, you know, you spend a decent amount of your time on, on one-on-one meetings and you need somewhere quiet and the phone booths are never available because people are squatting in them, you're not going to go into the office. So I think you need to be prepared for all of those eventualities to make sure that when I do come into the office, I get an experience that is valuable. I mean, again, using the, the, the people we reference in Australia, um, you know, their uh, Accenture, their phrase down there was, you know, earn the commute, right? You've got to earn that commute. You've got to earn the reason for somebody getting up in the morning, getting dressed, spending, you know, maybe spending, you know, 20, 30 minutes getting dressed, getting in the car, driving into the office, parking, paying to park, paying for lunch, potentially, right? And then also missing out on being able to drop their kids off in the morning and pick them up in the afternoon, right? So what what is the value? And you have, to, and that's what you have to prove. And that's what, in my mind, all of these sort of big diktats from up top just aren't doing, right? I get it. I get it. Jamie Dimon wants the culture where he doesn't have remote. And that's fine. And that's a lot of people will go there and make a ton of money working for JP Morgan. Right? But not everybody wants to be forced into that environment. And, and I think it will become and is becoming, you know, one of the primary reasons how people are going to pick jobs. Right. And certainly at a certain level, it's not just about the salary. It's about flexibility. Um, I think there are people certainly that I know who would take a lot less more money um, for a job if they could be flexible. Um, you know, if they could travel and if they could enjoy their downtime more by the fact they don't have to be tied to a city or tied to a, um, you know, a physical building. Yeah. Well, obviously, these are um, this is a debate that's going to continue to rage on in I believe you have a pretty uh, great follow up Bay Area session for purposeful intent coming up um, where this is going to be discussed, right? Yeah, we've not announced it yet, but we're going to do an event on August 17th in the Bay Area. um, And we're sort of headline, uh, you know, like all these clickbait headlines, you want to grab people's attention, but the headline is going to be um, in-person versus remote, the big debate. I think we all realize that the the answers depend upon who you are and where you are and, and probably fall somewhere in the middle. But we're bringing in two incredible speakers on remote, Nick Bloom and Darren Murph, 
Um, and then we're going to have a whole host of occupiers um, that you know we'll bring together. And as part of our roundtable sessions, we'll really have a robust, open discussion about the pros and cons and about why we're doing that. We're also looking for next year, given that our focus is, is future of work as opposed to real estate specific um, on, you know, how do we look at things like the impacts on frontline workers? Right. So people, I think, that are often under, you know, under um, represented when it comes to future work type discussions. Right. A lot of our reference points are knowledge workers, whereas reality is there's a lot more people involved. So I'm really trying to push uh, with with purposeful intent away from you know, some of those traditional discussions. I'm, I am finding, you know, when we're in Australia and we're heading to the UK next week, I don't think people are having that discussion as much because I think they're past it. And I think culturally, you know, there's always been more of an expectation and a belief that, you know, we give agency to the individual and they make the right decision. I think that's been one of the biggest challenges in the US because we've all been given that autonomy uh, because of COVID and also been given that proof point that we can be effective. And now there's a lot of people trying to sort of squeeze the genie back into the bottle. And I just, the why, it's always the why for me, right? Why are we trying to do this? There has to be a real measurable benefit to doing it. And I don't think we're seeing that everywhere. So it's going to be, I think, a really interesting discussion. Um, and, uh, you know, excited uh, as always to, to then be able to share that out with, with the wider community in terms of what we find. Awesome. What else is on tap for uh, purposeful intent? Uh, you know, really looking, I think next year at expanding uh, a little bit more on the global side. Um, you know, this year we, we hit Australia. We're going to hit Europe a couple of times. Um, we're going to different cities in the US. Uh, we actually just uh, announced a bit more formally today. We're doing an industrial focused event in Dallas. Uh, it's going to be a half day format. Um, you know, but really sort of expanding, I think, the frame uh, around around what we're working on. Um Another thing that we're going to be doing that's it's really be, become uh, a bit of a pet project of mine. You know, if you think of PI as it currently stands, uh, it's almost a response to 20 years of attending events and me crafting in my mind what I think is the ideal event. Small format, limited sponsors, everybody has access to everything. Um, you know, great speakers that uh, you always use the phrase, you know, we pay our speakers, they don't pay to speak. So it's not the people you would normally see. Um, and then, as you know, we always like to put on a big, a big, uh, a big party and a big um, sort of pat on the back at the end of the day, right? So we want every event to be different. In a similar vein, we're starting out uh, with our with our pretty serious planning. We've got a great team behind it of something we're going to launch in the summer called Purposeful Ventures. Um, and really, the intent of Purposeful Ventures is for us to go out. I think firstly identify genuine gaps in the market, right? There's still a lot of technology out there solving problems that don't exist or trying to find a problem. Um, and I think what we need to do is, is start looking at where are the real, you know, gems of solutions that we could help scale. Um, I'm finding, you know, I, I found an incredible company the other day in Ireland that only actually does work for a couple of um, FM firms in, in, in the island of Ireland right now that would probably be a world beater if they scaled and if they grew. Um, and over the course of my years, I've definitely seen companies that have failed because they didn't have the right ability to scale and grow. So the intended purpose of ventures is, is, is several fold, but at its sort of core is, you know, how do we help when we identify these companies that might be one or two people with a great idea? You know, they might be technologists that don't necessarily have ability or experience around marketing and sales. How do we help them optimize their pitch um, with real actual work? This is not a classroom exercise. This is actually putting it to the test. 
um, you know, within organizations? How do we help them identify their market and then also approach their market? So with the purposeful intent community, we can bring products to individuals, not to try and sell it to them, but to say, hey, you know, based on your knowledge, running real estate for a Fortune 50 company, how would this product fly? Where would it do best? What does it need, et cetera? Um, and then also, you know, the venture side of it is looking at, um, you know, raising smart money within the industry. So actually going to people within real estate and asking them to be our, our capital. And then, you know, on the periodic basis, actually having those capital calls where they will have a knowledge base already around the product, right? It might be somebody who's made a lot of money in brokerage or FM or ESG or whatever it might be, but having that pool of investors, not just throw money in, but actually be an active part of what we're doing. Um, I have seen, you know, too many occasions, especially recently where, you know, VCs come in and they kind of try and churn and burn the company as fast as they can. They're just looking to make a quick profit and get out. Um, you know, our, our view with Purposeful Ventures is that we want to actually help founders with products that have both a, you know, meaningful impact and also a societal impact to grow at the right level and pace, right? Not suddenly throw 50 BDRs at them, trying to sell everything to everybody, but grow them at the right level um, so that they are successful and, and tied in with the purposeful piece. Um, you know, we are gonna have sort of our, our own sort of um, codes around the, what we expect of our, uh, of our founders, you know, and, and it will include elements related to diversity and also, you know, social impact of the product. So it will include elements related to uh, giving back, right? So we're not just doing this as a financial uh, growth model. We're doing it so we can actually raise capital and funds that we can, you know, reinvest and we can share back into the community where where it's needed. So um, it's exciting. It's a lot of work, but uh, you know, it's uh, it's going to be a fun uh, uh, spin-off of uh, purposeful intent. Awesome. Well, look forward to uh, hearing more about that and seeing the impact that you have on both the, uh, the community and also the, the broader world at large. Um, let's, uh, let's jump into our rapid fire questions here, Simon, we're going to give you okay. five, five questions. Uh, you're going to get up to a minute to answer each of them. Um, and, uh, we're up to a minute. Yeah. I mean, we could take, you can be one word answers. I don't really care. Just yeah. answer, answer them. Um, question number one, um, so far along your journeys with PI, what's been the best, uh, your favorite city? Wow, that's a tough one. Um, honestly, I think Boston. I think Boston came together so well. It just felt like such a community. Um, you know, both of the speakers in Boston ended up coming out in the in the depths of the evening, and it just it just had such an incredible energy around it. And I think because it was so different, um, I think because it was a market that isn't as heavily tapped, um, people really took to it. And you know, we had a great venue. We had uh, really great evening entertainment with the uh, with the cook off. Um, and I think it was just something where everybody felt a part of it, which is hard to replicate. I mean, it's great. You know, we had an incredible dinner in New York at a beautiful restaurant, uh, but it's hard to sort of replicate an immersive experience. But we're going to try and do that as we go forwards in some of our other our other venues. Cool. All right. Question number two. Um, considering that event was revolving around food, what if you could only eat one cuisine for the rest of your life, what would it be? I mean, I'm big on um, Asian cuisine. Uh, I would probably go Thai. Uh, I think there's so many different varietals of, of Thai food that that would be where I would uh, where I would stick it. Okay. Well, if you're ordering question number three, if you're ordering Thai, like how spicy do you like your food? Are you kind of like low, medium, or or just stupid hot? 
No, I'm smart. I, I would say I go like low to medium. I mean, I think the beauty of those foods is is in the flavors. Like one of my favorite restaurants anywhere in the world is is called Rasika in Washington D.C. Um, and I think what they do best is it's an Indian restaurant, but they really focus on the flavor, not on the heat. Um, you know, growing up in the UK, you know, when I was at college, it was almost a badge of honor, right? You would you would order just or people would order obscenely hot curries just to prove they could eat it. And it's, uh, that was just never been my, yeah, it wasn't really enjoyable. It was just, (laughs) um, question number four, um, harking back on your, um, experience selling IWMS software. Um, give me one good benefit of implementing a software an IWMS and then one, um, kind of risk or, or something that is, is somewhat, detracting from that experience yeah i mean I, you know i think the benefit is in the name it's in the integrated right it's in having a single database that has all of the core information related to all of your different applications um so you know i want to see space information next to lease data next to fm costs um and that was always i think the promise of iwms um i think the detractor is that because of the size of the companies within um, the IWMS realm, you know, if you think about it, the, the big companies don't have that big of a development staff. It doesn't matter, you know, if, uh, if an IBM, for example, overtakes the company, there's still only a certain amount of people that are skilled in coding it. And I think with the growth and the need to develop more and more functions, they just can't as an, an IWMS cannot develop as quickly as, as a single point solution. Um, and I think with the point solutions, you know, you get a much richer experience, um, and functionality out a lot, a lot quicker. Um, and now I think we're, we're in a, a frame where, you know, security requirements and security needs are easier met. The I is less important than it was certainly, you know, five, 10 years ago. Yep, for sure. Every, every department in a business is its own buyer now, not just, Hey, yeah. we're going to buy this one system. That's going to cure all. Absolutely. Okay. Fi- final question, um, which is our standard question. If we were, uh, uh to invite two people, uh, on the show, who would you recommend? Ah, uh, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> um, I think, where would my head jump into? So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think spe- if I think about sort of past and, and future speakers and people I think that have been really impactful that are, that are within the industry specifically, um, we had um, a speaker in Los Angeles um, by the name of Lakshmi Renjarajan. Um, Lakshmi was incredible. Like she was a former, she was with WeWork for, for a number of years. Um, but I think a lot of her formation, um, uh, around her career and actually has become a really interesting part of what she's doing now, um, was that she worked for, you know, one of the core, um, dating apps, right. And, and that was before her time at WeWork. Um, and what she did from a presentation perspective was really, um, aligned, you know, the, the, the sort of the attraction of individuals in a match.com type scenario where you're looking for a partner with attraction of people to a team or to a space. Um, and I just found her absolutely fascinating because it was such a different frame of reference. Um, the second one, I've not met him in person yet. I'm looking forward to it in, uh, in San Francisco is, uh, Darren Murph, um, Darren, you know, one of the most sort of foremost, um, remote. Uh, experts out there. Um, you know, he runs workplace design and remote experience at Andela. Um, he also set up remote work at, uh, at GitLab. Um, and I just think, uh, you know, fantastic speaker, 
who can really go to the point of you know why why remote matters and is valuable and may well be the you know the future for for many organizations all right simon thank you very much for your time it was a pleasure having you on the show if our audience uh, wanted to find you wanted to learn more about purposeful intent how would they do that Yep, I'm all over LinkedIn, uh, that's for sure. And then um, certainly there's information related to, to our uh, Purposeful Intent events at uh, www.purposeful-intent.com. Simon, thanks. We'll talk to you soon. Really appreciate it.